20 years ago, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the United States went to war in Iraq. The Bush administration's vision of turning Iraq into a beacon of freedom quickly proved to be a fantasy. The war was a quagmire, dragging on for years and years, costing thousands of American lives. What are the lessons of this war? And have they been learned? How does this war compare with others like Afghanistan, which is the longest war in American history, or the Vietnam War, which is remembered as a disaster? Welcome to New Idea Live. I'm Elon Journo. Joining me today is Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Elon. So it's 20 years since the invasion of Iraq, and it's actually 20 years to the month, just within a few days of when George W. Bush stood on the deck of an aircraft carrier and announced mission accomplished, that American forces had completed major combat operations in Iraq. But of course, that didn't happen. That was not mission accomplished. It, was, it went completely the wrong way at that point. And in the years since then, there has been, I think, a lot of discussion about Iraq. And now at the 20-year mark, I, I thought it was really important to go back and look at this because We've been talking about this at the Institute for many years, and I think the way the conversation has shifted in the culture is really significant. There's a lot of things to learn about the way it's understood now, because I, I, just to, to preview what we're going to talk about in more depth, I, I really don't think that important lessons have been learned. Um, and I, I think this is a really important issue to, uh, to examine, because it, this is something that has lasting consequences. I wanted to get your perspective, Ankara, on where you see the Iraq war generally and why you're motivated to, to get into the topic. It, as you've said, it's important. It's unfortunately depressing, but the fact that it's depressing shouldn't make one turn away from it because it is so important. And is there anything more consequential for one's government to do than to go to war. And in a free or semi-free country, the, the government's your representative. Foreign people think of it and rightly think of it in that way. So these wars are fought, not they're not Bush's wars. I mean, this is America went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if, if you don't, as a citizen, think carefully about that kind of decision and whether to support it or to oppose it. And then if you don't think carefully, if you think that things went wrong and almost everybody does, I think it is thinks that even if they're, they say I would have done, I would have voted to authorize the use of for military force or what have you that so that they don't think I would have done something 180 degrees opposite of what I did. They nevertheless think that it, what happened was not great or at least could have been better and if you don't think of that like what so what is um so why was it suboptimal what were the considerations and ideas that made it suboptimal and how do you uproot those replace them with something good so the as a citizen you should be thinking about these issues and you should be thinking about po what politicians say about this and what more broadly what what people in the media and, and the intellectual world are saying about this, that we don't repeat or, but even that, like, that we get better 
in this regard. And part of what's depressing, I think, and part of what we're going to talk about today is the lessons that people have taken from Iraq and more broadly, the, 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 our response to 9-11, so that includes Afghanistan, certainly, they're not thinking about it in a way that there's, I have any hope that if a similar attack occurred today, we would do something superior to what we did in response to 9-11. And that's why I find it depressing. I want to add a bit of context. I'm, I'm sensitive. I've been speaking in various audiences, and I often am reminded by the fact that I lived through this and you lived through this. We remember it vividly. A lot of people listening will not know this. They were children at the time. Uh, maybe they weren't even born. So I think it's useful to put some of the context in focus here. And the two big parts of this are one, as you, uh, you mentioned, and, and this has already come up, the Iraq war has to be understood as part of the wider response to 9-11. So it happened, it began in 2003 and 9-11 is uh, a year and a half before that, but this was really part of a wider response. And the, the a big part of what we've been talking about at the Institute over the many years is that the response to 9-11 in many ways was not, there wasn't real thinking about what the, the nature of the enemy was, what to do about it. And Iraq was a consequence of that. The, the decision to go to Iraq was a consequence, consequence of that. So part of the, the context that's important to reactivate or to set for people who weren't there at the time is that 9-11 was a earth-shaking event for Americans. You, when you were in the streets, you saw flags flying from cars. People really had a, re, a reaction, a visceral reaction was healthy, which is America's leadership, political, military, intellectual, there's a need for us to act, the need for America to retaliate against this catastrophic attack, the worst on American soil since Pearl Harbor. So there's a real and valid desire for America to take action, to assert itself. And what you see as part of that is groups that you might suppose were uh, antagonistic to American self-assertion, there was real backing for America to take action. And when the uh, authorization for use of military force happened for Afghanistan, which was uh, widely seen as the necessary and the so-called good war, it was supported by a majority of politicians. And sort of culturally, you, you found people who were in any other context would have opposed it, they supported it. And then on top of that, you see various domestic things like the Patriot Act, which was put into effect. Uh, that was widely supported. It, I think it was a very bad decision, uh, but it was seen as a step towards safeguarding America. And the other thing that happened in the wake of 9-11 that was seen as popular was the, the constituting of the Department of Homeland Security, which was the assembling of a number of different departments under one umbrella with the understanding that this would better protect America. So, so there's this groundswell of popular desire, I think, justified that America should take action, including military action. That's one piece of this context. And the other piece of this that I think is important <clears throat> is that uh, whereas Afghanistan was understood by many people as in some sense justified because the group that attacked on 9-11 was, was rooted in Afghanistan, the Taliban was giving shelter to the Al-Qaeda group so there was, it was easier for people to understand the rationale for it. And 
there was really strong backing for that mission. However, the uh, what transpired with Iraq was something very different. And I think this is something we need to dig into a bit more. Iraq was really not popular. It was, by the time it came out, it, it, it provoked massive street demonstrations and, and a, a kind of anti-war movement, as they called themselves, people picketing and, and setting up camps in all sorts of places. And I think it's important because there was a real question at the time, why Iraq? What's going on here? And that question, I think, is part of what needs to be analyzed in thinking back on what is the lesson here? What should we be thinking about? This isn't to say that everyone who was challenging or opposing the war in Iraq was right for the was right um, in opposing it, or the reasons they gave were, were good reasons. But there was, a, I think, a, an understandable reluctance to uh, to target Iraq. Now, um, that's a bit of the picture of where we were at the time, and I indicated when I was setting up the conversation that. Iraq quickly went south in terms of once the military operation began, uh, soon after there was attacks and an insurgency and it became fierce. It was a, a real uh, bloodbath in many ways and um, nothing like what the American foreign policy leaders told us it would be like. So it's important. So this is another aspect of the, the context at the time. There were people who anticipated the arrival of Americans to be greeted with fanfare and, and support and, and a welcoming from Iraqis. That wasn't true. There were other people who thought this mission would be a cakewalk, something trivially easy. And in, in, on paper, you might say that makes sense because America is so much more militarily powerful. But there, I think both of those kinds of views reflected a delusion about what is the nature of Iraq? What is the nature of this war? What's being a, what's the goal of it? And what do you expect to happen given the kind of societies Iraq and Afghanistan both were and the kind of ideas that people held? And within that, the, the nature of the popularity, or the, just to put it uh, in those terms, just the, 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 the sympathy, if not popularity, of the Islamist movement across the Middle East, which was a factor uh, that was not recognized, even as the whole context for this was a reaction to 9-11. Uh, so so that's, I, I think that's important for people who weren't there at the time and that in terms of thinking about what to look back upon. Uh, anything else you want to add to that sort of story of where we were at the time? Yes, just something about the impact of 9-11 why it was viewed at the time such a consequential issue and i view it as still it's for the 21st century it's the most important event that happened and the reaction to to that event has set the stage for the 21st century but to think of it from the, the us's perspective it's as you said it, it's the mass scale attack on the U, on us soil the, really the first time since Pearl Harbor. And there was some recognition, however inchoate, that this has something to do with our policies so that we have to radically change course. We, it can't be business as usual. And so that there was um, the, a response through the country. And as you say, it was bipartisan in, in government 
that we're we're changing course, not tinkering with something. We're doing something very different. And part of why that there was a that this is partly the result of our policies is it was hard to evade fully. You could evade it partially, and many people tried in various ways. But to evade fully that we've been being attacked by these people for the last 20, 30 years, that they, they've been taking up arms against us from the seizure of the embassy in Iran to all kinds of attacks uh, on um, U.S. troops and U.S. interests in the Middle East, whether it's it's the barracks of the Marines, including, and I think this is just to get at the concrete level why it's hard to evade, a previous attack on the Twin Towers, the bombing in 1993, and them saying that they're going to be back and be more successful next time. And lo and behold, eight years later, they're flying planes into the World Trade Center. So that that we that the U.S. had been um, evading this or whatever we would have been doing, like it radically doesn't work. And so we had to reverse course and try something very new. And so the idea that we're going to war in this regard and we're not treating it as a police action and we have to bring these people to trial, that it was seen as... Um, Okay, yeah, now we're taking this seriously, doing something very different in response to these attacks. And part of the, the, the tragedy is the way that that was thought of, and including, as you said, part of the context is from the basically the day after 9-11, it was deliberately evading the role that militant Islam, a totalitarian Islam, plays in this. So you put it as, I mean, it's one way to describe the context, but unfortunately, I think the context is even worse. So it's that they were ignoring this, but it was, they're actively evading this and telling us, whatever you say, Islam had nothing to do with this, that these people, their doctrines, that you don't think that maybe it's poverty or something like that, but don't think it's their ideas and doctrines that are um, relevant here. And that uh, explaining why Iraq and then why there would be questions about Iraq, the more someone had a sense that, yeah, but there, the ideas and the cause is important here. And is it really that Iraq is the source of this and the, the, the kind of the, the fountainhead and inspiration for this? People were right to question that. But as you said, that 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 they opposed it doesn't mean they opposed it for good reasons, um, because the real question should have been, okay, you've got militant Islam that has been taking up arms against us for twenty plus years. They've just had this successful attack on the. How do we end this? Um, and it was it's not a plausible answer that well, you don't do any military operations in the Middle East. It is a plausible answer. You don't target Iraq, but so much of the anti-war was anti-war that it is like, who are we to take up military and if it's not authorized by the UN? And, and that, is, um, that is not a superior position to the people who said, well, we should go into Iraq. I think it's important to bring out that, just, just let me develop that aspect of it. So why Iraq? And 
the way that this is now remembered, and this is a, a good way to turn to the lessons people are trying to draw, the way it's remembered is the main justification for Iraq was Saddam Hussein, the dictator in power at the time, was known to have had a nuclear program that was destroyed by an Israeli attack. He was known to have used chemical weapons, suspicion that he, he was pursuing weapons of mass destruction of various kinds. And then th there's all kinds of stories about the problem or the lesson here is clearly once American forces landed and they discovered there were no weapons of mass destruction, that was a problem that this was a, an unjustified uh, basis for going into Iraq. And you get down this tunnel of discussing the question of the weapons of mass destruction. And I think it's important to think about that, but I, I think it's in, in important ways, it's not the, the critical question because once America was in Iraq, we got a new rational, a new rationale, or it was, it was layered on top of the fact that Iraq was a threat. Um, and, and just one other aspect of this, you mentioned that Iraq was not the fount of Islamic totalitarianism. And I think our view, and we, we were saying this at the time, it, the, the source of the, one of the major sources, not the most potent source was Iran neighboring. Uh, so, and that, and we argue that that should be, that's the logical place to look uh, if you're going to retaliate against this phenomenon. What was true of Saddam Hussein was that he was a dictator that, there's a certain kind of dictator in the Middle East, and he was he was a good example of it, who was somewhat secular, but uses religion to justify himself. So it's not he's not a theocrat, but he's more of a, a, a sort of a authoritarian. And he there was a history of him supporting terrorist groups, but nothing like what Iran was doing, and not even on the same scale. So it, it all had this sense at the time of how does this add up to to your point about people had a sense that this was connected to Islam, but then you hear vociferous statements from Bush and all of his supporters and his administration. This has nothing to do with Islam. And that's the puncture. The going to Iraq is one of the strongest ways of underlining the, that this is not about Islam. This is about something else. This is terrorism. And, and we, we, we spend a lot of time dismantling the idea that terrorism is the way to think about the problem. But this is just another angle on the point you were raising, which is that this was a kind of, there was, there was a motivation not to face the nature of this threat, the, the source of it being ideological, rooted in, in Islam and its teachings. And Iraq, I think, is, as it was suggesting at the time, it was the wrong target for all the reasons that 9-11 was consequential and the nature of the problem was, uh, laid bare for us by the attackers themselves. Um, so let me let me uh, put that to one side and then talk a bit, turn to Iraq and how it's understood. Uh, so one of the lessons, I, I just want to list some of the kinds of lessons people are drawing, and then we can dig into them. So one kind of lesson is, as I mentioned, there's a question about the intelligence around uh, weapons of mass destruction, the way in which American leaders got themselves to believe whether were they honest about this were they dishonest about this there's real questions about so-called groupthink or or the dangers of consensus and how at the time of the decision to go to war in iraq there was a kind of atmosphere or uh, that 
you, you had to go along with this. And, and, and a lot of people were, were pushing themselves into a belief that there was no basis for, a very shaky basis for. But again, I, I think that is, a, is a, an analysis that takes the issue of Iraq as a threat because of its weapons of mass destruction and, and Saddam Hussein as a dictator as a problem. And he, is, he was a problem, he was a threat, but nothing like the kind of threat we face from other places. And again, it's, it's, it's a distraction from the core question that you have to ask yourself after 9-11, which is, what are we facing? How is it rooted in regimes? And what are they, which are the sponsoring regimes that need to be understood here as part of this movement? And that's an aspect of what went wrong, which is not really thinking about that. So if, you're, if the lesson you're taking, as some people are, that the, the primary or the, a fundamental lesson here is about the handling of intelligence or the, the kind of dynamics of groupthink or, or consensus. Those are problems, but I don't think those are the most consequential or, or even the most significant problems in thinking about Iraq. Or, or, um, I'm curious what your reaction to that is. Yeah, so we read... I mean, we both read a number of things from different outlets and leaning in different political directions of people writing at these outlets at the Atlantic and so on, writing about the lessons of, from the Iraq war. Yeah, and, and one theme is this issue about um, the, the intelligence and, and services and getting that better. And then more widely, as you put it, like this group think about we're so willing to believe it. If you're gonna bring up the issue of groupthink and consensus, the essential issue is why did almost everyone accept or be unwilling to oppose the idea that religion and a certain interpretation of Islam had nothing to do with 9-11. That's, if you're worried about groupthink and consensus, it was, I mean, it was certainly the Bush administration pushing that, but th that we had bipartisan support included for that. There were everybody was going out of their way to say whatever you say. Don't dare say that um, some uh, version of Islam and the way that they interpret it is responsible here and is is the ideological cause of the the. That is the cause they're fighting for and why they view us as an enemy and an enemy to be targeted. And there's, in all the stories I read, there was no discussion of that issue, of how that, and there's a little bit more now um, recognition that Islam ha has some role here, but that nobody reflecting on this is thinking, yeah, part of the reason Iraq was the target is precisely because you could paint it as, yeah, look, look Iraq is the threat and that has nothing to do with religion. Hussein is secular and so on. And that if you don't see that as a, a major, if not the major element of making it plausible that if we're gonna address a threat that's the threat that we have to address in the Middle East. Um, and so I do think there actually is an issue of groupthink and consensus, but not in the way they think. It's in, it was on this issue and 
the way in which everybody fell into line in regard to this. I want to mention another kind of theme in the in the lessons that in the various readings we did. So I I often read things from publications where I know I'm not going to agree with with anything that they say. I might even be offended. And one of them is the Nation. I read a couple of articles there, and together one of the themes that they bring out, I think the overarching theme is. It's an attempt to, I mean, the summary of it is the U.S. was to Iraq what Putin is to Ukraine today. So the U.S. invasion of Iraq was unjustified by the U.N. It was violating Iraq's sovereignty. And that's exactly what Putin's doing today. So just written, the moral of this story is just remember how bad the U.S. was at the time and, and what a catastrophe we caused in Iraq. <clears throat> I don't want to spend a lot of time on this kind of view. I mean, there are other things in those articles that are more credible to me, such as the idea, we were talking about this before we started the conversation, that the, part of what they bring out is that America's actions there led Putin to feel emboldened in the years since then. But in the scheme of things, if, if your main takeaway is that the U.S. actions in Iraq are as bad as Putin's or that America and, and, and Putin's Russia are in some sense morally equivalent, then I think you're, you're not really thinking. You're not looking at the nature of the, the two situations appropriately. And you, there are important elements of this context that are just not being considered. One is that Putin is a dictator and the U.S. is largely free society. And the context of Iraq was the response to 9-11. There's nothing like that in the context of Ukraine. And, and as I said, I, as much as I'm drawn to, to rebut different elements of this, I, I, the important thing to me in seeing that is that's the lesson you're taking. Part of what I think is going on in, in analyses like that is there's a pre-existing view that is being for which evidence is being brought to support. And I think the pre-existing view is that there's something really rotten about the United States. Here's another case where that was true. And in fact, it's stronger that we're as bad as a tyrant like Putin. And to me, that that's not really thinking. That, that's a kind of rationalization or uh, a, a way of justifying something that you can't really justify based on the evidence. And so you're, you're making up uh, a uh, fallacious case for it. Um, and it, I'll and leave it there, but if you have any thoughts on that, I'm curious. Yeah, it, it's a way of evading something that is very important to face. So the idea of drawing a parallel to Putin with the Crimea or the Ukraine now and America with regard to Afghanistan or Iraq. Putin's is a war of conquest. I don't think anybody can doubt that. The idea that Afghanistan or Iraq were wars of conquest by the, that what we want to do is seize the territory and so on, is 
I don't think there's any plausibility to paint it like that. And the idea that the U.S. couldn't have seized territory in Afghanistan or Iraq, if that's what we were trying to do, our military is not Russia's military that is incompetent and and rightly so. Like, why would Russians want to fight for Russia? So our military is the best military in the world. If we wanted to take these territories, we could have taken these territories. That was explicitly not our goal. And you have to take seriously that it was not our goal. And it wasn't that it really was our goal, but we dressed it up as something else. It wasn't the goal. Um, and that's part of the problem in regard both to Afghanistan. It was our goal wasn't even to kill the perpetrators and the people shielding Obama bin Laden. Uh, we let them get away in Afghanistan and knowing they're going to get away. And in Iraq, it became what we're doing is bringing freedom to these people. We're going to build infrastructures, schools, hospitals, make it possible that they're going to vote and so on. It was a delusion of what the, the facts on the ground are, including people's ideas and ideology. And so on. But to paint it as what it was is about conquest. No, it was explicitly altruistic that it is, no, of course we're not doing it to take over Iraq and so on. We're going to bring freedom to it and, and it's, it's going to cost money and soldiers lives and so on. But Iraq then will be a better place. It'll be free and we'll have done something for them. And that's what the goal was. And that's what was driving policy. I'm reminded of George W. Bush's statement in one of his speeches at the time, which I found contemptible. Bush said, and I, this is a close, this is a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to what he said. Americans know how to sacrifice for the sake of strangers. And, and that was with reference to the soldiers sent into Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think the, the other element of this, just to reinforce your observation here, America was sprinting to the stage of trying to hand Iraq over to Iraqis. I think there was a piece of paper that they, they signed in 2005 granting Iraq sovereignty. We're not really in charge of Iraq. Iraqis are in charge of Iraq. Let's run the first elections. And then there's a series of elections of different levels of government to make real this charade of Iraq becoming a beacon of freedom or a dem democratic society and the, the Bush vision. And again, th there was just an urgency to get out and leave it in the hands of Iraqis in the sense that this is now going to function as a free society based uh, as free as, as the United States. So all the more evidence that if you really were trying to take over, why would you do any of that? That is not at all consistent with that goal. And of course, the, the explicit statements are the things that are that people are strangely oblivious to. So when Bush is spending hours giving us speeches over and over and over again, explaining that this is about remaking the world and ridding it of evil and tyrants and bringing democracy to the rest of the world, that's what's, what is important to pay attention to. He, he really meant that, and it was evident in the actions of the military. I... I want to turn to the other, there's a few other uh, commentators whose lessons or observations I think are, are more interesting to talk about than those uh, 
I mentioned from the, the nation. So the, the ones I, I most want to talk about are David Frum in the Atlantic. And for people who don't know David Frum, he was a speechwriter for George W. Bush in the 2000, 2001 period. And, and for many years after that, he was supportive of the war until he was not supportive of it. Uh, John Bolton, who was in government under Trump and previously with George W. Bush, and at least Brett Stevens, who is now a columnist at the New York Times, who is a conservative, both of these are conservative uh, figures. And maybe if there's time, we'll talk a bit about Ross Douthat in the, in the New York Times. But the, the, the point that David Frum, I think, tries to bring out in his analysis is that the decisions to go to Iraq were bad decisions, but probably honest. The, the outcomes admittedly were bad, but, and this is, it, it's, he's not pushing this very hard, but there's still this element, but there's some positives for Iraqis. So on balance, yes, we made mistakes. Yes, there were bad outcomes, but Iraqis are better off for it. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I was trying to read his analysis charitably, and, and I, think he's, I think he was really trying to grapple with this issue as, as much as one can being in the position he was, which was to, to trumpet this at the time and support it. Um, but I, I don't think that's the measure of what to say here. I don't think that the outcome for Iraqis is the thing that this hinges on, which is not the main thing he's arguing, but it's definitely a part of the analysis. Um, and just one other point, just to setting this up, part of his argument is that had we not gone into Iraq and, and removed Saddam Hussein from power, what would it have looked like? And he suggests that it would have looked very much like what happened in Syria, which is a civil war between the dictator and uh, various groups, including Islamists, but not just Islamists. And it's a total state collapse. I mean, Syria is, it, it's not clear that it's really a functional state at this point. Maybe it will become that, but it, it's just chaos. And it created real havoc as, as the years since 2011 have shown. I think that kind of counterfactual is really dangerous. It's, it's dubious to me that that's the case. And it, it, I think the important thing about this is it's treating Saddam Hussein as the primary concern here, which was, yes, he was a dictator. Yes, he was a problem. But is that really why one should go to Iraq? So this goes to the point that came up earlier, which is why why are we reacting? What, what is the impetus here? I think the impetus is 9-11 and the Islamist threat that we saw vividly uh, causing havoc in the United States. It is not our responsibility to go around and remove tyrants from their places of power, even if the outcome of that is better uh, for the people in that country. And even if it's marginally better for us, it's not, there's no obligation to do that. And it's not even always wise to do that. There has to be a really high bar for when you would do something like that. And I don't think Saddam Hussein posed the kind of threat that would have warranted that kind of action. Uh, I'm curious what you took from, from Trump, from Frum's analysis in Atlantic, Onkar. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the concrete, the, the 
pr presentation of the counterfactual, I find fantastic that um, Iraq would have collapsed like Syria. And if you don't think of Syria's collapse in connection with the coalition going into Iraq, Iraq collapsing, the rise of ISIS, I mean, the insurgency and then ISIS, if you don't think that has an impact on, on Syria, and, and I don't think Syria would look like it does today, absent the Iraq war. And so why Iraq would just become Syria, and so I, I don't find it all convincing. But in terms of thinking of this as lessons drawing from the Iraq war, what I think almost all the commentators do that is, this is not what it looks like to actually draw lessons, is they, they in effect have two scenarios. One is we went into Iraq and, and then they will say, well, we, we shouldn't have done it for the, exactly these reasons. But it's just projecting that or that basically that we would do nothing, that we after the, the um, Twin Towers fell, we'd clean up, maybe rebuild, but then just sort of try to go on with our lives and do nothing. And if you think those are the two alternatives, then in thinking about well, what lessons to learn from Iraq? Okay, maybe we should have done it differently. We shouldn't have been so susceptible to that when the intelligence agencies are telling us they likely have weapons of mass destruction. But if you think of it at a more principled level in terms of what would a proper response have been to 9-11, that no one's even talking about in, the, in these commentaries about well, what happens if we went after Iran instead of Iraq? What happens if we had decided that that was the actual target that we had to go after? Um, and and give there's plenty of reasons for why. We've talked about some of them. There's no reason to think Iran has a superior, superior military than Iraq. I mean, they fought a war basically to a stalemate and so on. So there's not, I don't think, really military reasons for thinking as you talked about earlier, that Bush declared mission accomplished in regard to Iraq, that like the major, con I think he put it something, major combat activities over, that something like that would have been possible in Iran. There's all kinds of reasons to think the Iranian people are both are more sophisticated and more pro-Western, pro-America than Iraqis are, are so that if the, the idea of trying to rebuild, I think, has much more plausibility in Iran than Iraq. But they're, they're, they don't grapple even at that level with, like, what are the, le the lessons might be that we targeted Iraq for really bad reasons that go well beyond weapons of mass destruction. And even if you think about it just at the level of weapons of mass destruction, and we toppled a tyrant, and uh, Saddam Hussein was a brutal tyrant and a vicious man and a vicious regime. Um, if you read just some of when, for the first Gulf War, what happened in Kuwait uh, when the Iraqis were there for about seven months, it's horrifying. But even if you thought of it at the level of a tyrant, weapons of mass destruction, if you're thinking of it from the perspective of America's interest, can you really make an argument in 2003 that Iraq versus North Korea, that Iraq's the greater threat 
that North Korea doesn't have programs of, that they're trying to develop weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons. It's a more brutal dictatorship than um, uh, in, in Iraq. There's reasons to think if you toppled North Korea that it, it, it could be united with South Korea. So the idea of, then of, of getting something more positive, it's way more opportunity in North Korea than in Iraq. And if you're thinking of it from just in that kind of concrete way, from the perspective of America's interest, and now the North Korea has weapons of mass destruction, and that seemingly they can hit at least parts of the U.S. with their nuclear weapons and so on. Why wouldn't you think like, well, why didn't we go after North uh, North Korea versus Iraq? And so that's the they simultaneously know. Well, the answer is because. This has was a response to 9-11, and it's true, it's not plausible as a response to 9-11, go after North Korea. But then you have to think of it in a much wider context. What it would have been a proper response to 9-11? And almost none of them talk about it. It's all like focused on Iraq, and it, it's just so not the way to think about foreign policy. I want to draw out one thing in Frum's analysis that I think we've touched on, but it, it's worth bringing out a bit more. And I think he's right about this, which is the, and this is not his main lesson, but it's, it's one of the many things that he thinks of as, as consequences that are, that are worth noting. It's the idea that Iraq has created a uh, reluctance for America, a lack of confidence to face potential threats and to act on them. And, and I think that is true. And I think that it's one way to think of it is that the Iraq war came to be taken as a, as a, as discrediting the use of military force because it was seen as well, America is being tough and this is what happens. It's a, it's a, an insurgency that's killing people every day by the hundreds. It's, it's eating up American lives and, and massive amounts of money. This can't be good. And so what the conclusion, I think it's a false conclusion, but what people draw is, well, when you use the military to solve these problems, that's not going to work for you. There was something like this that happened after Vietnam, but not, I don't think it was quite as lasting. And, and I think that, I think the Iraq war has made it seem more lasting or, or it's the the lack so it's i think there's two strands here one is the misconception that it was a military failure which i don't think was true but that the, the view that the military is inefficacious that's one strand the second strand is a more generalized lack of confidence and a, and a valuing of america and a, and a kind of self-confidence which i think is really being eroded in the u.s as a result of the disastrous results of the iraq war um, and i think from is right to draw that out uh, and we should come back to that but to me that is the, the, that is everywhere i mean there's no question that's true yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to that, I think, at the end of the podcast. Okay, I I want to talk a bit about, maybe briefly, about John Bolton and Brett Stevens. I'm not sure about getting to Ross Douthat, but his was interesting too. But I, I put both, I put John Bolton, 
uh, who's at one time an ambassador to the UN for George W. Bush, and then he served under Trump in a foreign policy kind of capacity. <clears throat> and then Brett Stevens, who is a conservative columnist of the New York Times. I put them under the same heading because I think that the lesson that they draw, the, 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 the account that they offer about this is, is they don't have any regrets, really. I mean, they, their view is there are details that were wrong, maybe, and I would tweak some of the details, but I would do the same thing over again. And, and uh, a quotation from John Bolton in an NPR interview, he was asked, what would you do knowing everything you know today? He said, knowing everything I know now, I would do exactly the same thing, meaning support the Iraq war, support the consequent decisions subsequent to the invasion, the, the influx of Americans, it called the surge to quell the insurgency, all of that as a, as a whole, he would, I think the gist of it is you would do the same thing. And there's a little more sophistication in Brett Stevens's account. So his account is, knowing what I know now, this is a quotation, I would still have supported the decision to invade, not for the reasons given at the time, not in the way we did it, but the baseline question of whether Iraq and the Middle East and the rest of the world would be better off for getting rid of a dangerous tyrant, my answer remains yes, end quote. And I think this is interesting for the reasons that you brought it just a few minutes ago about the, the conception of America's interests versus the kind of question that he's answering, that Stevens, in some context, it's true that it's we're better if there are fewer tyrants on the face of the planet. There is some sense in which that's, as I, even as I said, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I mean, tyrants are bad. We can say that they're really bad to their to their own people. But the question then is, is that the same thing as advancing America's interests? And I think they're being. I, I mean, this is really the question that's not based in that kind of view, which is, and I think part of what Stevens is doing is rationalizing. I, I don't think this is, if you're saying not for the reasons given and not in the way we did it, but I still think we should have done it. What exactly are you, do you think we should have done and for what reasons and under what conditions to what end? And I think that's really missing from his, his uh, account of uh, looking back at Iraq 20 years on. I'm going to hand it back to you, uh, Ankar, just for a sec. Sure. And it, it, it's again, so th these are commentators with different political views, different kind of overall perspectives on politics, government, and what is proper in those regards. And it across the board, they can't even learn the concrete lesson that um, Iraq was the wrong target. And that, uh, so I could understand the a position of, I still would have supported war, but I would have supported, I should have been really advocating for war against the two sources of giving inspiration to Islamic totalitarianism, which is Saudi Arabia and Iran, and, and Iran because it's the more militant of it. But both of those regimes and countries should have been ostracized, opposed, and Iran certainly should have been the target instead of Iraq. And just at that level, they can't, it's, they can't get, um, 
that that, that, that it's not even still in their minds, I think, an option that that after 9-11, that was an option. And part of what was being pushed is, no, Iraq is the threat. That is who we have to target. And part of it is, um, and it, I mean, part of the debate at the time was, well, but the, these, um, the, the perpetrators of 9-11 have connections to Saudi Arabia. And then it was trying to, yeah, but they also have connections to Iraq and trying to draw something into that. Um, and even now when they say, well, uh, they look back 20 years from now and they still can't think that, um, yes, the, the, there's something radically mistaken about Iraq as a target. It's again, the, the, the way they think of it is it's, well, it's, well, either the Iraq war or nothing. And isn't it better that a tyrant is gone and so on versus, yeah, but what was actually possible it, at the time, and that's when I said earlier about the context, I think it's very important to recognize that the American people were ready for a shift in policy. So it, it probably only at that time, it was on the table that we could do something about Iran, that if people had been making the case, this is who's responsible for this, in the widest sense, because they're the the source of Islamic totalitarianism, and unless we end them, we're not going to put an end to this. And the American people were ready to, yeah, we're not going to just bring them to trial. This is what happened to the the previous person who bombed the World Trade Center and so on, and view it as a legal matter and so on. No, this is you toppled the trade centers, you attack New York City, you attack Washington, they're going after the federal government in the seat of power. So we're at war and the Americans were ready for um, the, they would have been open to the argument that what who has to be defeated is Iran. And it's in that context that the neocons and others are pushing Iraq at, and, and going out of their way to say, oh, don't think it's Islam and so on. And I mean, they even invited Iran into the coalition. Um, I, I forget the way the Bush put it, but he, he invited Iran in. And I mean, we've been treating Saudi Arabia as an ally to this day. And that that they don't even find it necessary to argue for, you might think Iran should have been our target, but no, I still think Iraq. And so it, it's just It's just out of sight, out of mind. I think we should turn to talking, pulling some of these threads together. We can skip over. I, I suggested talking about Ross Douthat, but I think we should skip over that. Um, he says some interesting things, but I, I don't think it's uh, especially worthy of um, extra time. So let's turn to the question then is, <clears throat> I mean, some of the lessons we are drawing, I think have been, have come up in the conversation. But let's, let's try to, Put them in capsule form a bit and i think one observation that we started with is that iraq really is a an era defining disaster and it's it's a an aspect of 9-11 in the sense that 9-11 was the primary iraq was a a really bad foreign policy decision that made things worse for the united states because it did not pursue 
a course of action that would have eliminated the threats we faced and, and the, the source of the problem. So Iraq is an intensification of a, of a longstanding uh, irrational foreign policy, which we saw culminate in 9-11. Um, and I think that we, we brought up as well the issue of not conceptualizing what is America's interest. What does it look like to define that in this context with 9-11, the World Trade Center in rubble, and the whole history of the attacks leading up to that, uh, and the concerted effort not to, to face that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about how to weigh this, how to put it in a scale relative to two situations. One is Afghanistan and one is Vietnam. And Afghanistan, as some people will remember from a couple of years ago when the US would finally withdrew from Afghanistan, it was, it was an embarrassing as an understatement. It was a real debacle with the US forces scurrying out and, and desperate Afghans trying to uh, escape the country knowing, and as actually happened, knowing that the Taliban and other Islamist forces were poised to take over completely, which is basically what they've done since then. And people just running for their lives and Americans evacuating basically from a country that they spent 20, near, almost to the day, 20 years fighting these uh, Islamists. I think that's the most vivid recent memory. And it has echoes to Vietnam because in Vietnam, there's this famous photograph of Americans evacuating from the embassy. And that's exactly what President Biden said would not happen in Afghanistan. Americans would not be brought low. And in fact, that's, that's sort of what happened. But Vietnam is remembered. It's a byword for a foreign policy disaster. Afghanistan is, is close to substituting for that now. So within that, how do you think of Iraq, Ankara? How, where do you put it and, and why? Yeah, I think of it in combination with Afghanistan, that this was our response to 9-11. And Afghanistan is the capstone on it in a very negative way that, as you said earlier, it's the longest war in US history. And one has to think of it as a defeat, that it, it's, um, as you said, we fled in a way that is similar and similar visually to what happened in Vietnam. <clears throat> and the Taliban have taken over Afghanistan. That's where we're fighting. And 20 years later, they take over the country. So it has to be seen as a, a defeat. And it's worse than Vietnam. And its consequences, I think, therefore, will be worse than Vietnam. Because Vietnam, though it could be seen as a defeat, people had some recognition of it like what that part of the problem was we had no idea why we're even there, what we're fighting, what we're trying to accomplish. And so the the perspective that we shouldn't even be there was a real and valid perspective. I think in the end, it's true that it's we, there was not no reason to think U.S. interests and national interests were at stake in regard to Vietnam. It was a self-sacrificial war. But nobody can think about that in regard to a response to 9-11 and Afghanistan, and then the wider of thinking of Afghanistan as a start, but is not, even if we had victory in Afghanistan, 
that would not be end the threat of the uh, uh, Islamic attack. So it's much more clear, and, and because it's true, it's clear because it's true that American interests were at stake, that we had, we were attacked, and that we have to respond. So there's not really an option of, oh, but we shouldn't even be in Afghanistan, or we shouldn't even be in the Middle East. No, I mean, we have to end this threat. There wasn't a threat from Vietnam in that same way. And so it's plausible for people to think, well, the problem with Vietnam is we shouldn't have even been there. Nobody can think, I think, really, that the problem with Afghanistan and what we did in the Middle East is we shouldn't have even been there. Um, we should have just let them keep protecting Osama bin Laden and so on. No, you can't think that. So it's we had to do something. And the way then that the failure will be looked at will be, well, we can't do something militarily. It's we've we tried and we fought in Afghanistan and we fought the longest U.S. war and so on. And it didn't work and we lost. And the same in Afghanistan, I mean, in Iraq, we had this pick, we're going to topple a tyrant, set up free governments, elections, and so on. And Iraq is going to look like Japan did after World War II, 10 years later or something like that. And it again, well, no, that didn't work. And so it takes the, that if, if attacked again, as I say, I have no idea what our response will be, but I do know that there will be, it won't look like the, in the country, I think after 9-11, that we have to respond militarily. I think the bulk of the American people knew that we have to respond militarily after 9-11. And here it will be, yeah, but that, if, if there were a similar attack again, it's, but we've tried that, that doesn't work. Well, maybe we need to go to the UN, negotiate, what have you. And, and that is, that is not the proper lesson to draw from what happened, but I think it is the lesson that so many people, including the American people, will draw from it. That it, I don't want another Afghanistan or Iraq, so we have to try something different. And something different means not different militarily and in terms of thinking about the enemy and who we have to target and so on. It will be something different means something that's not involves the military. One of the things I have observed, and I, I, it, it concerns me for many reasons, but related to the point that this is taken as a uh, evidence that the military is not a solution to any problem, that it's not something we should pursue. I think that if you take Iraq along with Afghanistan, the analysis that the Institute brought out in a, in a, in a piece by Dr. Len Peikoff at the time, right after 9-11, was that for 50 years up to that point, America's foreign policy was a mess. And I think 20 years since then have not improved our foreign policy. In fact, it's worse than it was. And the particular thread that I, I'm concerned about is, in particularly if you think about some of the people whose articles we looked at, there is no question that people view Iraq and, and Afghanistan as actions in the service of American interests. I don't think anyone questions that. And I think the one, so this is a, an aspect of, I think, your point. This makes sell, pursuing our, our interests look dangerous and destructive. And it's all the more reason not ever to do it and to be humble and to show restraint. And there's, there's a whole school 
and a, a growing school of people <clears throat> in the intellectual foreign policy space pushing for what they call restraint, which is just being humble and not pushing military and and not that you should have the military at, at your you should have a an itchy trigger finger that's not the point the point is that you should understand when the military is the solution to a problem when it's necessary for the protection of the rights of americans but that's now even more scrambled than it was in the years prior to 9 11 because i think everyone who everyone who sat in the oval office for the last hundred years will tell you all they're doing is pursuing American self-interest. And each one of them is contradicting the other in terms of what that consists in. And now we have these epic scale demonstrations in, in, in people's eyes of, well, they, we tried that. And look, we, we, we shouldn't be pursuing our interests. We should just put our heads down. And the, the wider philosophical issue here, I think, is that both at the level of an individual and I think even more so at the level of a society, the idea that identifying your self-interest is easy and pursuing it is trivial, that is not true. We, we, we argue that in, in ethics, uh, we argue that in foreign policy. It takes work to think about what your, your actual interests are and merely wanting something, merely feeling that this is going to serve your interest. As an individual is not true and we know that you can teach that to a child when you get to the context of foreign policy it's even harder to conceptualize your self-interest in the concrete cases that we're faced with and it takes real thought and in a long-range vision of what to do and, and the the concern i have is that it, it, this is compounding that kind of confusion and making it much harder to think about what our foreign policy should be and to, to your point about what, what's going to happen if there's a similar kind of, I have the same kind of question. Like, who is going to be speaking for that? Who, who has the, the beginnings of a clue if this is what it looks like in most people's minds to think that we've been pursuing our self-interest uh, in these last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan? And maybe we should now talk about some of the wider long-term effects of 9-11 and the response in with Af the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq is as part of the reason I think of it as setting the, the, the stage for the 21st century and what we've seen in the, the first 20 plus years of the 21st century is people have commented on it in with the rise of populism, with the rise of Trump in America, but populism in other parts of the war, uh, world, including say Hungary with Orban, um, that th there's been a, they, they'll put it as an erosion of respect for institutions, which is true, I think, and that this is a real phenomenon, but it is, I think, rarely traced back to 9-11 and the aftermath and response to 9-11 and I think that it that is the when it becomes widespread and obvious that institutions are not presenting the facts are unwilling to confront the actual reality that we're facing and will go out of our their way 
to misrepresent. So, and this was in regard to the issue of whatever we know um, and whatever, sorry, whatever we don't know and whatever we have to figure out, the one thing we know is Islam had nothing to do with this. And that it's hard to go back to the, the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and how much this was pushed by politicians, Democrat, Republicans, by basically every media outlet and figure that it, this is our one certainty. We know that we don't know why they attack us. We don't know what they're after, but we know it has nothing to do with Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. And that was obviously false. And the, I mean, there some people who made their name by saying, look, look, you're, what you're saying is obviously false. And, and I, here I think of a Sam Harris, who was really pushing this, who viewed himself at the time as he's on the left. And so, and it's, look, but you, you guys are just evading reality. You can't look at the Middle East and think that religion and their interpretation of Islam and this kind of fundamentalist Islam that has, has been growing for a hundred years. And so, and if you look at what they're actually saying and what they, they say animates them, you can't reach a position that Islam has nothing to do with this. And he, he was attacked. And I think when you look at it and the atmosphere around, like he, he couldn't understand how it was that he could be being attacked for something that was obviously true. And the, what, what the, response should be to that you could have different views and so on but you couldn't deny the fact that this was involved and it was the first issue that on a very concrete level it was clearly false the whole line being maintained so it wasn't some abstract principle that it, it, it's difficult to figure out what the truth is was it it's it so clearly was that this is part of what animates them because they tell us over and over and over that this is part of what animates them and that this would cause start start to cause widespread disillusionment and disrespect for institutions of government and then more broadly the institutions of, of the so-called mainstream media and so on this was the i mean there were real reasons to disrupt distrust these institutions and to think that they're not interested in the facts and in the truth. Um, and it's, it's once you get that kind of atmosphere that then you have people spinning conspiracy fantasies and so on, that's a, that, that's a um, uh, kind of soil that is ripe for that kind of thing. But it was first created by these institutions um, so obviously either evading or misrepresenting the actual facts. I mean, I, I would just just add one more to that list of institutions that I think became obviously on the wrong side of this issue, and I think that that's academia. One one thing to remember: I this is really vivid for me. In the years after nine eleven, there there was just so many intellectuals, academics who became public intellectuals who were writing op-eds, speaking on TV, and just going out of their way to enforce a kind of orthodoxy about this issue. Such And, and there's, there's a whole academic literature and, and a whole tradition here reinforcing this view that the whole analysis of what Islam 
is and, and the Islamist movement and how to think of them and, and what I regard as false accounts of what is animating them, they came to the forefront and, and you see that, I think, and, the, and the, you see that people coming forward and making that case and that then you get, as you put it, the political uh, institutions, mainstream media, and then and the whole idea of a mainstream media versus uh, blogs and so forth. And then the, the, I think the, the most powerful of them, or in some respects, more powerful academic, academics coming in and standing as experts and telling you boldly, you are wrong for having this thought and you, you should not be part of polite society. Uh, and I think I can see how that pushes people in, in, in destructive uh, directions. Uh, yeah, um, that, that's an important point that, that, yeah, you have to add academia as an institution. And again, of thinking this as setting the stage for the 21st century, you, I think one cannot understand the phenomenon of, of so-called wokeism, as it will be put, and their militancy without seeing the precursor of this was in regard to Islam and people bringing up the idea that no, there's an interpretation of Islam that is integral to understanding the mentality of the people who are trying to seize power and totalitarian control in the Middle East in places like uh, Iran and want to export it worldwide and see the West broadly in America specifically as their enemy. If you if you can't face that this is the ideology that is animating them, you can't face the actual issue. And it was, as you said, it wasn't even open to debate. It was, you cannot entertain this idea. And, and uh, I know you have, and I have as well, protest on universities about just having a discussion of this kind of issue. And with a real militancy and think of again how that emboldens if you can do that when the country's been attacked by these people and so and you can't talk about their ideology or say it it, it involves islam so that that emboldens a kind of mentality that is yeah we can police what is said and not said on a university what's open to debate and not open to debate so and the, the, so to think that that kind of mentality just comes out of nowhere with the wokeism. No, it has a precursor in what happened in 9-11 and the success or the relative success that they had. Of, and if, if you just think of the smear of Islamophobia, is like if you say that this ideology is in part religious, you're, you've got a irrational fear of these people. Or the, I mean, the, 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 it's a complete smear and it's used to this day and that, that indicative of its success. I mean, there's, there's still more to be said on this topic. I, I give you the opportunity to add anything if you want, but I think we should um, turn to try to begin to wrap up. And th there's one other thought here, which has, has come up a bit, but I think it's worth just naming briefly and curious if you have other things to add on this. And I think it's related to this erosion of respect for institutions. And, and I think an aspect of that is if you think about America in its heyday or, or, or in its, its best aspects, 
it's a positive place. It's a place where things get accomplished, where people come here to build lives and people brave oceans to get here and immigrate and, and to, with the hope, not the promise, but the hope that they can do better than where they started from. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm sure a lot of immigrants are motivated by that. And that's been true for, for hundreds of years of people coming here because of the freedom and the opportunity and the accomplishments that are, have been made possible by that. If you think of in industry and in science and in, in all fields, it's just this beacon of accomplishment and achievement. And I think in that respect, I think, I think back to before I, I was living here and what I, how I thought of America, it definitely was the place where they have something to be proud of. Like if you ask me, what am I proud of when I was living in the United Kingdom? I, I, I couldn't really tell you. I don't know that I was, but I had this view that if you were living in America, there's cool things that are happening there, really inspiring things that you could say, yeah, if you're part of this place, there's something good about it. And I think Ayn Rand was, was sensitive to this issue and she wrote about this, this idea of, of Americans, uh, just their attitude to life and, and what kind of culture that builds. And one of the things that the Iraq slash Afghanistan, you put them together, one of the things they've done, I think, is, is take a sledgehammer to that and really break down whatever was left of that kind of self-confidence I don't think it's gone. I don't. I certainly don't think it's completely extinguished. I think in some parts of society, some some sectors, there's still a lot of ambition and confidence. But as a whole, if you think about it as a sort of an atmosphere, and as manifested by some of the phenomenon we've been talking about, the sort of the populism, that is. I don't think of populism as as motivated by anything positive. I think it's sort of like this this grudge that's honed into something and wrapped. In a flag. I don't think it's rooted in the kind of original spirit of America. I think Afghanistan and Iraq really have undermined that sense of confidence. And if you just take the Afghanistan withdrawal, Iraq is, is a harder thing to keep in mind because it was, it was a 20 year plus train wreck, but Afghanistan had a, a searing end a conclusive end, which Iraq still doesn't really have. I mean, there's still American forces there providing assistance. But Afghanistan is over in a, in a definite way. It's a defeat, as you mentioned earlier. And the scenes, just the way some of these things are remembered are, has to do with the experience of what you read about, what you see on, on the news. And that, I think, is, is as a cultural part of the experience of growing up in this culture and what people, I think it's, it has to, to impact the sense of what kind of country is this that fights for 20 years, gets its face spat in, and then leaves with a tail behind its legs. And I don't mean that in any sense to, to diminish the work of the, the people on the ground or the military, but just as a, no one can feel proud of that. And rightly, because it was, it was shameful as a political endeavor. And I think that kind of, uh, that's, that's really corrosive of thinking about the value of this country and what it can accomplish. Um, so to me, that's one of the lasting and, and really concerning elements of this. Yes, I, I agree with that. The way I think about it, but it's really the same point, is that American exceptionalism is real, that, or at least it was real. It refers to a real phenomenon that this is a country 
based on an idea for the first time in history, we're going to build a new country based on a new political philosophy that respects the rights of the individual. Part of the reason people want to come to the U.S., as you say, immigrants from around the world, is precisely the American exceptionalism. And um, even something like World War II, which I think there were many, many problems with our foreign policy in regard to World War II, even entering World War II, but siding with Soviet Russia, for instance. But you can still think of what America did in World War II as, as exceptional. And the idea that you would have two defeated nations like uh, Japan and Germany, and that they will be rebuilt and rebuilt in the way that they were and as now peaceful and pro-American in a wide, wide sense, and then just seeing the difference between East Germany and West Germany. Like what it look, East Germany is the norm of a conquering country like Russia and so on. And it and it what you get is not something very good. West Germany, by contrast, is um, was I mean a, a spectacular success story. And that's part of like who else could have done that but the United States? And that's part of the exceptionalism. And now when you look at well the aftermath in Afghanistan or the aftermath in Iraq, it looks just like any other regime having come in um, and either won or been defeated. And so on. But it, you don't get any sense of American exceptionalism. And again, of thinking of it for the 21st century, what has happened, I think, for the first time ever in American politics is that people are elected who do not think America's exceptional. And I would put both Obama and Trump into that category. Obama did not, in the end, think there's something exceptional about America. And I mean, in regard to foreign policy, one of the he, things he did was a whole apology tour going around the world, including the Middle East. And basically, the message is like, we're no better than anybody else. Um, and we shouldn't hold, we shouldn't think of ourselves as better than anyone else. And Trump is the same thing on the other Republican rather than Democrat. But it, he does not think there's anything exceptional about America. And the most concrete evidence of that is his love for dictators like Putin or um, the North Korea's dictator and the acceptance of people to that. The, there were, before 9-11 and when people still had an idea that there's something good and unique about America, an American president who says like, oh, Kim Jong-il, we've fallen in love and so on, would have been driven out of office. Like, like you, you view yourself and our country as we have something in common with dictators. Um, and yet fast forward into the 21st century and after the part of what the consequences of the wars uh, after 9-11 is America doesn't look exceptional. And yeah, that that that's is not just abroad that we don't look exceptional. We don't look exceptional at home, and people have absorbed that. And you could not get this kind of um, president, either of Obama or Trump. I think again, without the, prior to 9/11 and what we did in response to 9/11, and that's part of the the erosion of American self-esteem and American exceptionalism. Well, let's let's draw a line here. I, I think there's there's certainly more to say, but uh, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. 
Let me acknowledge, uh, thank you for the super chat donation. We appreciate your support. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us. Uh, let me mention a couple of resources for all of you watching wherever you are. Number one is Ankar and I put together a book that was uh, expanded into a second edition in 2021. It's called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, What Went Wrong After 9-11. It's a collection of institute writings going all the way back to 2001 and analyzing the topics we've been talking about, both Afghanistan, Iraq, the, the whole wider perspective on the response to 9-11. You can find that online. Uh, it's available in Kindle. It's available in PDF for free, and you can buy paperback copies too. I hope you, uh, if you're interested in exploring the Institute's perspective on this, uh, that's a, a good resource to take a look at. Let me mention uh, another resource. If you're new to Ayn Rand's ideas, if you're young, if you, and by young I mean 18 to 25, we would we welcome you to get a copy of Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's masterpiece. Uh, this is available as a free download. If you follow the link on the screen, we'll put it in the show notes. We invite you to explore Ayn Rand's ideas and, and understand the philosophy that she originated and how it was dramatized in her novel Atlas Shrugged. It's free, as I said, and you can share it with people. We hope you take advantage of that. Uh, and that's all for this week. We'll be back next time. If you have questions or feedback, you can write to us, newideal at aynrand.org. We welcome comments, feedback. If you have questions for us, sometimes we have episodes where we answer questions about objectivism. And if you have comments and feedback about the episodes, we welcome that. We read everything uh, and we try to respond to many of them. So thank you for being with us today and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.